Once Jeopardy settles on its new host, a possible clue for the game show might be this was the first person in the American intelligence community to warn of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. The answer, in the form of a question as the show's format requires, would be, who is Dina Bennett? She started her career in 1988 as a terrorism watch officer in the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, its in-house intelligence analysis shop whose stated primary mission is to, quote, harness intelligence to serve U.S. diplomacy. In that capacity, Bennett was responsible for monitoring intelligence and news media to analyze terrorism trends and respond to attacks as they occurred. In December of 1988, a bomb placed by Libyan intelligence operatives blew up Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing 270 people on board and on the ground. 190 of them were Americans. 35 were students from Syracuse University in New York. According to the FBI, it was the biggest terrorist attack in American history until 9-11. After the end of the Cold War, Bennett noticed that many Arab veterans of the Afghan Jihad were returning to their home countries and joining up with local armed insurrectionist groups. After doing further research, she found that many of these Afghan Arabs had relied on a network to send men, supplies, money, and weapons to Afghanistan. A few years later, that network was still active, sending Afghan Arab veterans to join radical Islamist groups around the world. Bennett began writing classified papers about her research. She heard about a man named Abu Abdullah, one of Osama bin Laden's many aliases, who was financing some of these Afghan Arabs. While researching the Aden Hotel bombings of December of 1992, Bennett learned from Yemeni officials that Osama bin Laden had financed the attack. This attack was covered back in episode 2. While Bennett was on maternity leave in February of 1993, the World Trade Center bombing happened. When investigators found that the perpetrators of the attack had ties to the Afghan Jihad or had gone there to fight, Bennett's boss called her while she was still in the hospital saying, your people did this, referring to the Afghan Arabs that Bennett had been tracking. There was a draft of a paper she had been working on sitting on her desk at the State Department. Its subject was the movement of Mujahideen from more than 50 countries with ties and experience in Afghanistan who had been joining Islamic militant groups from Algeria to the Philippines. When Bennett returned to work from maternity leave, she went back to and finished her paper. Her five-page paper, titled The Wandering Mujahideen, Armed and Dangerous, was published by the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research over the weekend of August 21, 1993. It is now declassified without any redactions and available to the public. Though it was published only a few months after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the paper mentions many of the issues that have been discussed throughout this series. Battle-hardened veterans of Afghanistan continuing their jihad in other countries. The Arab Mujahideen connections with the World Trade Center bombings. The political and financial networks that funded the Mujahideen. Their perception of victory against the Soviet Union. The final paragraph reads, quote, The growing perception by Muslims that the U.S. follows a double standard with regard to Islamic issues, particularly in Iraq, Bosnia, Algeria, and the Israeli-occupied territories, heightens the possibility that Americans will become the targets of radical Muslims' wrath. Afghan war veterans scattered throughout the world could surprise the U.S. with violence in unexpected locales. A week later, she wrote another classified analysis this one focusing on Osama bin Laden. It was titled, quote, Saudi Patron to Islamic Extremists. Bennett cites an excerpt from it in her book, National Security Mom. Quote, Bin Laden had established an organization called Al-Qaeda in the 1980s, 
From his new location in Sudan, he was running investment companies, enabling him to fund the Sudanese National Islamic Front and Islamic militants in Sudan and abroad. His facilities in Sudan were training a variety of fighters. He had established ideological ties to other militant religious figures around the globe. He had funded the Yemeni group responsible for two bombings in December 1982 that targeted U.S. soldiers and hotels in Yemen. He was committed to financing jihads against anti-Islamic regimes worldwide, and his reach extended to Pakistan, Tajikistan, Bosnia, Thailand, and beyond. Osama bin Laden biographer Peter Bergen points out, quote, This was the first time that anyone in the U.S. government had identified Al-Qaeda as a threat. The context has to be taken into account here. Bennett explicitly mentions Al-Qaeda by name in her analytic work in late 1993, when the organization's name and existence were still closely guarded secrets. Keep in mind, this is almost three years before Jamal al-Fadl walks into an embassy and offers up everything he knows on Al-Qaeda to the U.S. government. In Peter Bergen's words, quote, No one in the U.S. government has tracked Al-Qaeda and all its many branches and offshoots for as long and with as much distinction as Bennett has. I'm David DeSola. This is the fifth episode of Zero Hour, A History of 9-11. Setting Gina Bennett's extraordinary foresight aside, awareness in the U.S. government of Osama bin Laden or Al-Qaeda during the early 90s generally depended on which agency a person worked in and where they were assigned to. People like Diana Balsinger, Mike Scheuer, Cynthia Storer, and Barbara Sood were generally in the intelligence community assigned to a foreign CIA station or headquarters when they first learned of bin Laden. Others were in law enforcement, like John O'Neill, Dan Coleman, Frank Pellegrino, Patrick Fitzgerald, and Kenneth Karras, found out later on, usually in the context of a criminal investigation. There are counterterrorism specialties and functions in different government agencies, but generally speaking, before 9-11, the issue of terrorism was generally handled by two agencies in the government, the Central Intelligence Agency and the Department of Justice, which includes the FBI. Institutionally and legally, both have different mandates and functions. The CIA monitors threats and collects intelligence abroad for policymakers, sometimes operating in cooperation with other intelligence agencies in the U.S. government. Some examples include the National Security Agency, which handles electronic eavesdropping, or the National Imagery and Mapping Agency, colloquially known as NEMA at the time, which specializes in satellite imagery. Sometimes, the institutional mandates and legal guidelines that the CIA and FBI abide by come into conflict with one another. The issue with treating terrorism purely as an intelligence matter is that intelligence by its very nature is highly classified. Sometimes it won't pass muster to be admissible as evidence in a criminal case, even though the intelligence may be actionable from a policymaker's perspective. Sometimes an intelligence agency may decide a source of information is too good to break up, and will allow it to continue in spite of possible risks. On the other end of the spectrum is the Department of Justice, whose prosecutors work hand-in-glove with FBI agents. Their mandate is law enforcement, which means capturing and prosecuting criminals who commit federal crimes. The United States does not have a national police force or a domestic intelligence agency, like MI5 in the United Kingdom. In both cases, the closest equivalent would be the FBI. At the same time, the FBI has both intelligence and law enforcement responsibilities. Occasionally, someone on the intelligence side of law enforcement would have to take evidence collected during an intelligence case and pass it to a prosecutor for use in building a criminal case. This practice was referred to as tossing it over the wall, 
or tossing it over the Chinese wall, comparing the metaphorical barrier separating intelligence and law enforcement to the historic Chinese fortification. The issue with treating terrorism purely as a criminal matter is that before 9-11, it was largely a reactive affair. In other words, the investigators and the prosecutors were called in after an act of terrorism had been committed, as was the case with the Africa Embassy bombings and the USS Cole, which was covered in Episode 4. The goal of counterterrorism is to stop an attack before it happens. As previously reported in Episode 3, the FBI failed to prevent the World Trade Center bombing in 1993 because it had cut ties with an informant they had inside the terrorist cell. However, thanks to that same informant, the FBI was able to stop the landmarks plot and neutralize the cell permanently. Imagine the offensive and defensive squads on an American football team. Though they both ultimately play for the same team, they have very different compartmentalized functions. Now imagine the two squads not coordinating with each other or, in some cases, telling each other what they know or what they're about to do. This actually happened. But first, it's necessary to understand how they got to that point. In the 70s, the church committee and other investigative bodies discovered excesses and illegalities committed by the CIA and the FBI. Domestic espionage, assassination plots, coups, mind control experiments, propaganda campaigns, new reforms, and strict congressional oversight were implemented to keep these two agencies in check. Under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover, the Bureau began collecting domestic intelligence as far back as the 1930s. These activities would gradually expand over time. Between 1956 and 1971, the Bureau had a covert action program targeting domestic organizations and political dissidents. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, the FBI spied on numerous political figures, especially ones Hoover sought to discredit and authorized unlawful wiretaps and surveillance. As a result of post-Watergate investigations, quote, the FBI's domestic intelligence division was dissolved and reforms recommended that were designed to build a wall between federal law enforcement and the nation's intelligence community. The wall separating intelligence from law enforcement will be discussed in more depth later in this episode. Consequently, in the American legal system, the CIA is forbidden from carrying out intelligence operations on American soil. Law enforcement, surveillance, and counterintelligence matters would be the exclusive domain of the FBI. On the other hand, the CIA was given wide latitude for foreign operations. Historically, the modern national security community was designed to counter or target foreign governments. The American national security system came of age during the Cold War, when the main focus was the Soviet Union and its agents. Counterintelligence, catching or tracking foreign spies operating on American soil, was one of the FBI's main mandates. The system was not really designed for a nebulous, non-state organization like Al-Qaeda, whose members cross back and forth between national borders and sometimes have communications with people in the United States. In many ways, the story of the government's response to Al-Qaeda can be told through the prism of two career civil servants who saw and understood the threat the organization posed years before 9-11. John O'Neill, a 25-year veteran of the FBI who takes over as chief of the Bureau's counterterrorism section in 1995. Two years later, he's named special agent in charge of the National Security Division in the New York field office. Michael Scheuer, an analyst who spent 22 years working at the CIA, including as director of what came to be known as the Bin Laden Issue Station. Full disclosure, I was a graduate student of Scheuer's at Georgetown University. On a casual glimpse, they are very similar. They're both strong-willed Catholic men 
who rose to leadership positions in their respective agencies during the crucial years leading up to 9-11. They were also unafraid to be brash and outspoken in their opinions, even willing to make a few enemies along the way. There's one problem. They don't like each other. Listen to these comments Scheuer made about O'Neill during an exchange with Congressman William Delahunt during a congressional hearing back in 2007. Keep in mind, John O'Neill had been dead for nearly six years at this point. John O'Neill, who was the FBI uh, chief of counterterrorism, you had this to say about him. Mr. O'Neill was interested only in furthering his career and disguising the rank and competence of senior FBI leaders. Yes, sir. I think I also said that the only thing, good thing that happened to America on 11 September was that the building fell on him, sir. Okay. When Osama bin Laden returned to Afghanistan in 1996, Scheuer was one of several people in the CIA who thought this would create the ideal opportunity to capture or kill him. The thinking was that the agency could reconnect with some of its former assets from the Soviet-Afghan war, who would be able to apprehend bin Laden for them. The CIA had already reached out to its old contacts in Afghanistan as part of its hunt for Mir Amal Khanzi, who you'll recall from episode 3. He was the Pakistani who shot and killed two CIA employees outside of the agency's headquarters before fleeing the country back in 1993. The breakthrough in the Kanzi case came in June of 1997. According to the New York Times, the CIA's officers in Pakistan had, quote, maintained some paid informants among the Afghan tribal headmen, guerrilla fighters, religious leaders, and village elders it had supported in a $3 billion covert operation against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s. Kanzi spent his time back and forth among members of his extended family on both sides of the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. According to the Times, quote, Afghans in the border region, where the economy is largely based on opium and smuggling, knew Mr. Kanzi from his travels through Spin Buldak, a depot town on the only passable road linking Quetta with Afghanistan. Kanzi was lured to a hotel in Afghanistan as part of a ruse by Afghan informants, who were motivated to help by the U.S. government's $2 million reward for his capture. At 4 a.m. on Sunday, June 15th, five FBI agents snuck into the hostel, knocked on his door, and arrested him. Now in custody, Kanzi was driven across the border into Pakistan. There, he was taken to an airbase, where he was loaded onto an American military plane and flown back to the United States to stand trial. Kanzi was tried in Fairfax County Circuit Court, just outside of Washington, D.C. He was tried in Virginia, rather than New York, because that was where he committed his crime. He was tried in state court rather than federal court because at the time of his attack in 1993, federal law did not provide the death penalty for acts of terrorism. He received a death sentence and was executed by lethal injection on November 14, 2002. The success of the Kanzi capture and rendition showed that capturing Osama bin Laden alive in Afghanistan and bringing him back to stand trial was theoretically possible. The operation was entirely contingent on having accurate, timely, and actionable intelligence, and the CIA's allies on the ground being able to deliver on their end of the deal. The intelligence community's views of Osama bin Laden being something more dangerous than a terrorism financier began to take shape in May of 1996. That was when Al-Qaeda defector Jamal al-Fadl walked into a U.S. embassy and offered up everything he knew about the organization and bin Laden. His story was previously covered in Episode 2. By 1997, the CIA and the Department of Justice are on separate parallel tracks with the same objective, 
capturing Osama bin Laden. Federal prosecutors have convened a grand jury in New York to build a criminal case against him. At the same time, the CIA is drawing up plans to capture bin Laden alive in Afghanistan and somehow bring him back alive to stand trial. First, a brief crash course at how the justice system operates at the federal level. All 57 states and territories in the United States are divided into 94 judicial districts. There are 93 United States attorneys across the country. Each one serves as the chief federal law enforcement officer in each judicial district, with the exception of Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands, which share the same prosecutor. Each U.S. attorney is nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Much of the activity on the law enforcement front in this story has taken place in New York City, specifically the Southern District of New York. Its jurisdiction includes the New York City boroughs of Manhattan and the Bronx, as well as the surrounding areas of Dutchess, Orange, Putnam, Rockland, Sullivan, and Westchester counties. It is considered one of the most powerful and influential federal prosecutor's offices in the country. By virtue of geography, many cases involving securities and financial fraud are handled by the Southern District Office because Wall Street is in their backyard. Counterintelligence and espionage cases are handled by the Southern District as well because the United Nations, along with hundreds of consulates from all over the world, are in their jurisdiction. For that same reason, it began taking on terrorism cases in the aftermath of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the 1994 Landmarks plot. Joe Billy, the special agent in charge for counterterrorism at the FBI's New York field office, would later tell the 9-11 Commission that the Southern District of New York was the only U.S. Attorney's Office in the country that had its own separate counterterrorism unit. Here are former federal prosecutor Fran Townsend and former FBI agent Pat DeMuro. Why do so many terrorism cases wind up at, at Southern District of New York? A lot of jealousy in Washington about that. Um, you know, when you look at how the Bureau deployed on cases, it was always a battle because technically New York didn't have extraterritorial responsibility. Most of it was with Washington Field because they were right down there with justice. But when it came to Al-Qaeda, uh, when it came to those investigations, the, the body of knowledge rested in New York. And I'll give you an example of what I told Bob Mueller when he came to New York for a briefing after the 9-11 investigation. Um, you know, I said, you can go back to the first World Trade Center bombing. And, and I mentioned the intelligence that was gathered about the Al-Farouk Mosque and, and the individuals raising funds in Mujahideen there, and then opening up the case into Osama bin Laden. And then Manila Air, the Bojinka investigation, where they're going to blow up 11 jumbo jetliners over the Pacific Ocean. And you have the blind shake that was going to blow up the Holland Tunnel and the, uh, the FBI office. Uh, and then you go to uh, the coal investigation, the East African investigation. All those investigations had ties to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. The body of knowledge regarding Al-Qaeda rested in the New York office. So that's why um, the FBI wanted to be in New York, wanted to be in charge of that investigation. So the Southern District, for the most part, was very aggressive in those prosecutions, and they fought very hard to prosecute those cases. And the agents and the prosecutors in the Southern District worked very closely together. So that's where it ended up. Now, after 9-11, um, you know, Washington wanted to break that. And, and I, I learned this after I was transferred down to Washington to run the 9-11 investigation, but it was Mike Chertoff who was in charge of uh, the criminal uh, section of justice that 
was fighting hard to have those prosecutions in the Eastern District of Virginia as opposed to New York. I think for the Southern District, I, I came out of the Southern District before I went to Washington. I'd spent, I don't know, six or seven years there. Um, Dave Kelly and I were colleagues. I really think for the office, it stemmed out of the original World Trade Center bombing. We had oftentimes the Southern District didn't have clear jurisdiction for that one. It clearly did. And then once that happened and they, as Pat said, developed the body of knowledge working with the agents, then it was just a matter of looking for jurisdiction. And, you know, it's not so hard to find a, a bad guy passes through in a, in a years long investigation. He may pass through Manhattan once. That was it. That was good enough. He yeah. mailed a letter that went into Manhattan. Got it. <laughs> I mean, so there were it, it wasn't so hard to find jurisdiction as a prosecutor if you wanted it. And as Pat says, the relationship between the prosecutors and the agents and the body of knowledge was so far superior to anywhere else in the country, Washington in the beginning didn't fight it at all. The 9-11 Commission investigators who interviewed Joe Belly would note his views for the record. Quote, the prosecutors developed an understanding of al-Qaeda. They developed cases against al-Qaeda that would have been out of the comfort zone of other U.S. attorneys' offices. It was a good combination, an aggressive field office and an aggressive U.S. attorney's office. Mary Jo White served as United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York from 1993 through 2002. She was the first, and to date only, woman ever to hold that position in the 200-year history of the office. The task of building a criminal case against Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda would fall on White and her team of assistant U.S. attorneys, Patrick Fitzgerald, Kenneth Karras, and Michael Garcia. Patrick Fitzgerald joined the office as an assistant United States attorney in 1988. He worked the Landmarks case and participated in the ensuing criminal trial. Between December 1995 and August of 2001, he served as co-chief of the Organized Crime and Terrorism Section in the Southern District of New York. In 2001, he participated in the embassy bombings trial and was later nominated and confirmed as United States Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois. June 10, 1998. A federal grand jury in New York hands down an eight-page indictment against Osama bin Laden, charging him with one count of conspiring to attack American defense installations. Years later, Mary Jo White told the New York Times, quote, There was no question from our perspective that at the time of the June 1988 indictment, the objective was to bring bin Laden back for trial. The original indictment was sealed at the time, and would eventually be superseded by another public indictment issued on November 4, 1998, tying Osama bin Laden and others to the Africa Embassy bombings. <laughs> FBI agent Ken Maxwell was one of the original members of the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force, the first task force in the country which was formed in May of 1980. According to Maxwell, the task force was created specifically to address the issue of domestic terrorist organizations of the extreme left and extreme right, which had been active during the 70s and 80s. These included Puerto Rican separatists, anti-Castro Cubans, as well as domestic terrorists like the Weather Underground and the Black Liberation Army. In Maxwell's words, quote, The focus of the Joint Terrorism Task Force was to identify all the subjects involved in these domestic criminal enterprises and build prosecutable cases against them in federal court. Of great import in this effort was the first use of the RICO statute in terrorism cases, which proved to be a powerful weapon in dismantling these organizations and obtaining significant convictions. Known colloquially as JTTFs, the FBI describes them as, quote, groups of highly trained, locally based, 
passionately committed investigators, analysts, linguists, and other specialists from dozens of U.S. law enforcement and intelligence agencies. When it comes to investigating terrorism, they do it all. Chase down leads, gather evidence, make arrests, provide security for special events, collect and share intelligence, and respond to threats and incidents at a moment's notice. Four decades later, there are more than 200 task forces around the country, including at least one in each of the FBI's 56 field offices. Ken Maxwell described the JTTF's role in breaking up the landmarks plot. Well, you know, the Terrorstop case, codenamed Terrorstop, uh, the Blind Shake case, it's more commonly referred to as, uh, that was a vivid example of what can be done by the terrorist task force when it's allowed to operate freely, lawfully, obviously, and in a, in a very uh, proactive, preventive manner. A tremendous amount of resource went into that case, our special operations uh, division, which, by the way, I had the, the privilege to head up before I went over the counterterrorism as the ASAC. Um, 24-7 surveillance, uh, the electronic um, you know, eavesdropping capabilities that we got through Title III. Uh, it, it was an extremely significant case in showing the world, actually, and, and including our, our formidable adversary, bin Laden and al-Qaeda, that we can stop these things. Uh, if, you, if you look back at some of the already publicized uh, uh, information about the searches, and they were literally mixing the brew to carry out the, these, these attacks. This was not something that uh, was, you know, happened by uh, by luck. It was uh, great investigative work and tremendous effort on the part of everyone involved. Frank Pellegrino, the FBI agent who spent years chasing Ramzi Youssef and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed around the world, joined the New York JTTF in early 1992, roughly one year before the World Trade Center bombing. His role in both manhunts was covered in episode three. I assume for something as massive as that, there's a, a lot of uh, division of labor that goes on as far as, you know, some agents or some, you know, division takes this aspect of the case and some person takes this other aspect. Uh, is, that, is that correct? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, obviously, when the when leads are, are generated in different parts of the country, obviously, different offices would handle the leads in their area of responsibility. And, and within the New York office itself, you know, generally it was split up. Like when it was determined who was involved in this, the division of labor was to, to break up the squad that was going to be responsible for the 93 bombing, to break them up into uh, the subjects. So you had various agents working on the various subjects. Those subjects were your responsibility. So it was broken up that way. Then you had, you know, guys that were working just on, you know, telephone information and people working on banking information. So, you know, it's, it, it is broken up a bit. So what were you assigned to? Well, it was interesting. I, I uh, myself, uh, Brian Parr and Tom Kelly, Brian Parr from Secret Service, Tom Kelly from ATF, who were members of the task force who came over um, after the bombing. We were assigned fugitives. So there was one guy, Abdul Rahman Yassin, and uh, one who turned out to be Ramzi Yosef, who at the time we only knew as a guy named Rashid. So we were assigned to 
find out what we could about these two people. I was also do- doing some of some bank record stuff only because of my background. And it's through the bank records that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed first comes to the FBI's attention, correct? Uh, $660 to uh, the bank account of uh, Mohammed Salome. You know, we, we, we realized it means realize it later on, but once we got all the records and looked at it, Ramzi Yosef was living with for a time with Salome and was utilizing his bank account. So we saw the uh, incoming wire transfer and, uh, you know, we sent out leads to Lee Gatson, to other government agencies to try to determine who this Khalid, all the, all the information was that it was a Khalid who lived in Doha. So at that point, we really didn't know who it was, but I guess it was maybe... Few months later, we, we was determined that it was most likely a relative of of, uh, of Ramsey Yosef who had sent the money. Mark Rossini joined the New York JTTF in 1997 after six years of experience as an agent. There was a push at that time to bring over criminal investigators, people that had experience, uh, well, breaking criminal cases, and um, they didn't want anybody green out of the academy. You had to have some sort of experience in a courtroom knowing what a subpoena was, knowing what a national security letter was, um, and knowing how to build a case. Because at the end of the day, terrorism is a crime, okay? Now, if you think about it, the ultimate act of a terrorist is the actual terrorism act, the bombing, the shooting, the killing, the whatever it is, the mayhem. But in furtherance or in 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 getting to that goal of that day to do that terrorism activity, that terrorist has to live, has to eat, has to make money, has to pay the rent. So what we focused on why we needed criminal investigators, and we still do, is to go into the backgrounds of those people that are suspected of being terrorists and pick apart any criminal activity they may be engaged in in an effort to bring them down. So whether it's going over their immigration record or going over their credit card uses or their bank records, finding something which unveils a criminal activity on their part in order to effectively arrest them before they commit the criminal act. Rossini started his JTTF career working on other terrorist groups before events caused him to switch his focus to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. I first started working matters concerning uh, the Hezbollah, the FARC, the ETA, and um, who else? the Tamil Tigers. On my squad, I-48, in those days, 1997, we had a hodgepodge of groups, Hezbollah, the IRA, and then all the lesser ones, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I've done a little Hezbollah work, but mostly FARC, ETA, and Tamil Tigers. Basically looking for their presence in New York, who the support network, et cetera. Then East Africa bombing happened in August, 1998. And that's when I finally discovered and realized who Osama bin Laden was in Al-Qaeda, because that was the squad next door, I-49. And when, I, when Nairobi happened, I went to headquarters for a few weeks, and then, then, I went to, then I went to Nairobi for three months. And then I came back just before Thanksgiving. And by then, I had gotten up to speed on Al-Qaeda and what was going on, who they were, and who this son of a bitch evil man Osama bin Laden was. In Washington, a career prosecutor named Fran Townsend was the head of the Office of Intelligence and Policy Review, known colloquially as OIPR, which today is known as the National Security Division. 
In that capacity, Townsend dealt with FISA requests. FISA is shorthand for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It was a law passed in 1978 in the aftermath of the Church Committee revelations. According to the 9-11 Commission, this law, quote, regulated intelligence collection directed at foreign powers and agents of foreign powers in the United States. According to the Department of Justice, quote, through FISA, Congress sought to provide judicial and congressional oversight of foreign intelligence surveillance activities while maintaining the secrecy necessary to effectively monitor national security threats. FISA was initially enacted in 1978 and sets out procedures for physical and electronic surveillance as well as collection of foreign intelligence information. Initially, FISA addressed only electronic surveillance, but has been significantly amended to address the use of pen registers and trap and trace devices, physical searches, and business records. The law also created the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, a special federal court that holds hearings behind closed doors to determine whether or not to issue warrants for national security investigations under the FISA law. The Justice Department created OIPR, which would be responsible for presenting surveillance applications to the FISA court. This is how Townsend described her job at the time. I viewed the office I was running as a service organization, right? We were basically there to support the Bureau. The other thing I did was review CIA covert operations for their legality um, and the policy around it. And so there really wasn't. My phone rang and I had no idea what, you know, I worked in a skiff the, the secured compartmented information facility. So it was basically like working. When I got there, uh, there were probably not more than 12 lawyers. Uh, they were still using a, a selective Because you were working on class documents, you had to take the ball and the, the tape out every night and put it in the safe. Um, by the time I left, we probably had 65 lawyers Everybody had computers and we had connectivity to the FBI. But that was a it was such a period, as, as Pat said, you had a purpose, you had a mission. And for all of us, every day was September 12th. You know what I mean? It was even before September 12th happened because you had this impending sense that something was coming, something was going to happen. And one of these days, they were going to get lucky if we missed something. And so there really was this frenetic sort of pace um, and we were in it together. I mean, I, I can remember the guys up in New York calling me one day at lunchtime. They needed, there was a briefcase in a car um, that they needed to get access to, um, and they, but they needed a warrant. And they needed an emergency warrant because the guy who had the car was going to lunch. And I get a frantic call from John O'Neill and Pat and says, no, 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 I need it now. And there's no such thing in those days. I mean, there was, we had never done a telephonic warrant. We had never done anything like that because we didn't, we always had time. And I literally remember going out of the skip up to the attorney general's office. It was attorney general Reno um, and explaining the facts to her, putting the guys on a speaker phone, walking through the facts, telling her the law, telling her, I believe that met the standards. She granted it orally. The guys had no piece of paper. They just broke into the car. And we thought, we'll paper it later if we get caught. Um, but that was those were the days where you just you did it because you had to do it. And you really felt a sense of purpose. You were protecting your community. You were protecting each other. Um, it was really a very um, special time. 
Her former FBI colleague, Pat DeMuro, added this comment. We used to call it running and gunning, and we always called Fran and said, what do you mean we can't get an emergency Pfizer? We got to have an emergency Pfizer. You know, you can't say no. We got to have this now. You know, if something goes off, it's going to be your fault. (laughs) Here's an example of how they used Pfizer in the World Trade Center bombing investigation. What draws your attention to the Alfred Mosque at that point? Well, as I said, stemming from the first World Trade Center investigation, uh, I believe in 94 is when we opened up that joint intelligence operation with the agency, because in that investigation, the counterterrorism branch identified Osama bin Laden and the solicitation of funds in Mujahideen from the Al-Farouk Mosque. Now, we never investigate a mosque, so to say, and Fran can go into more of this. We look at individuals. We only target individuals for FISA and, and, and make sure that uh, we have enough credible, probable cause to go after and collect more information on those individuals. But it was the first World Trade Center bombing that identified Osama bin Laden. You're right. Before that, he wasn't on the screen. That, that put him on the screen that investigation. And we quickly realized when they were using the Services Bureau of the Al-Farouk Mosque, they expanded over time. Pat, you'll remember this. They used the Muslim charities, international charities to move people and money. And I can't tell you how long it took us to convince sort of the, you know, our bosses and the, the FISA court that they were using these charities as a cover because as Pat says, we're quite careful about not targeting religious places, nonprofits, right? We had to have sufficient evidence to establish probable cause that these charities weren't so much charities as fronts for their operations. February 1995, John O'Neill, a 19-year veteran of the FBI, had recently been promoted to chief of the counterterrorism section at Bureau Headquarters. According to O'Neill biographer Murray Weiss, The position was responsible for domestic and international terrorism, as well as weapons of mass destruction. He packed up his home and office in Chicago on Saturday, February 4th. He drove all night from Chicago to Washington, D.C. and went straight to the office on Sunday morning, even before settling into his new home. That morning, White House counterterrorism advisor Richard Clark was also in his office when he read a report that World Trade Center bomber Ramzi Youssef had been spotted in Pakistan. He knew the intelligence and national security community would have to move quickly if they were to have any hope of catching him. Clark called the FBI, where he was eventually put through to the new head of counterterrorism. This is how their first conversation was reported in Murray Weiss's biography of John O'Neill. Who's this? Clark asked. Well, who the hell are you? I'm John O'Neill, he responded. I'm from the White House, Clark said. I do terrorism. I need some help. After being briefed on the situation, O'Neill got to work. He spent the next three days without sleep working the phones with the Pentagon, the State Department, and people in Pakistan to organize Ramzi Youssef's capture. In the middle of all this, O'Neill turned 43 on February 6th. A team of federal agents captured Ramzi Youssef in a guest house in Islamabad on February 7th. His identity was confirmed and he was put on a private plane back to New York so he could stand trial. Ramzi Yusuf's capture and criminal trials were previously covered back in episode 3. During his first 72 hours on the job, O'Neill had played a key role in the capture of America's most wanted terrorist, who had been on the run for two years. O'Neill biographer Murray Weiss noted, quote, Wherever he went and whatever challenge he took on, 
O'Neill always impressed people with his complete immersion in whatever he was doing. He had no prior experience in counterterrorism and set out to make up for that. According to Weiss, he demanded complete files for every case that a section was working on and spent weeks studying and absorbing as much information as he could. One of his former colleagues said, quote, John made himself the terrorism expert, and then he started educating FBI Director Louis Free and his other immediate bosses. Within a month of the triumphant capture of Ramzi Youssef, O'Neill sent agents to Japan to investigate the Amshinrikyo cult, which had just dispersed sarin nerve gas on the Tokyo subway, killing six people and exposing hundreds more. March 8, 1995. John O'Neill receives a report about Osama bin Laden. This is happening as the United States and Saudi Arabia are pressuring the Sudanese government to expel him from their country. According to Murray Weiss, O'Neill, quote, spent most of the night of March 8th poring over bin Laden's words in his new communique and studying the FBI's file on the Al-Qaeda leader. In the morning, O'Neill spoke with the CIA to learn their assessment of bin Laden's latest diatribe and also reached out to the NSC and other government agencies for their source information on the Al-Qaeda leader. A few days later, O'Neill was told to attend a meeting with Deputy FBI Director Robert Bryant. Once it started, he made his case that Osama bin Laden was the most pressing threat, citing his research. O'Neill explained bin Laden's biography and expressed particular concern about how a terrorist with his resources and wealth could cause harm to the United States. Bryant would later recall this meeting was the first time he ever heard of Osama bin Laden. O'Neill also began discussing bin Laden with Richard Clark. According to Murray Weiss, O'Neill would compare bin Laden to a young Adolf Hitler. Like Gina Bennett at the State Department, at this point John O'Neill was among the few people in the entire government who had heard of Al-Qaeda and knew what it was. He warned Clark, quote, It is inconceivable that they are not here. Former FBI agent Pat DeMuro, who worked under O'Neill in the New York field office, described his approach to counterterrorism. There was one day where I was really pissed off at John O'Neill. And, and uh, we had the Saudis in town and we were touring the Federal Reserve Bank. And he turned to me, he said, what's wrong? And I said, you know, John, just, just leave me alone. <laughs> and of course, John can't do that. He's got to keep digging and crying. He said, I know what's wrong. I said, what's that, John? He said, you got a young son at home, you know, your wife, you're not spending any time with your family. You're working all day long. And then we're liaisoning all night. Uh, he said, uh, you either have to let counterterrorism consume you or get out of it and work something else in the FBI. And I thought about that. And I thought to myself, I'd be damned if I'm going to let him run me off because I really enjoyed what I was doing. So you let it consume you. And it, it really takes over your life. January 21st, 1995. President Clinton signs Presidential Decision Directive 39. The 17-page document, which has been declassified and is now available to read online, will outline U.S. policy for counterterrorism for his administration. Journalist Steve Call pointed out that the document centralized authority for counterterrorism policy at the White House for the first time. In light of the post-9-11 fears that led to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, it's worth noting that eight years earlier, this document explicitly warns of the dangers of terrorists getting WMD. Quote, The acquisition of weapons of mass destruction by a terrorist group through theft or manufacture is unacceptable. There is no higher priority than preventing the acquisition of this capability or removing this capability from terrorist groups potentially opposed to the U.S. Among other things, the document lays out the rules for which agencies have jurisdiction over terrorism cases. 
With one exception, the FBI would be the lead agency across the board. Quoting from the document, The Department of State is the lead agency for international terrorist incidents that take place outside of U.S. territory, other than incidents on U.S. flag vessels in international waters. Quote, The Department of Justice shall remain the lead agency domestically. Quote, Unless otherwise specified by the Attorney General, the FBI shall have lead responsibility for operational response to terrorist incidents that take place within U.S. territory or that occur in international waters and do not involve the flag vessel of a foreign country. Within this role, the FBI shall function as the on-scene manager for the U.S. government. Quote, The FBI shall have lead responsibility for investigating terrorist acts planned or carried out by foreign or domestic terrorist groups in the U.S. or which are directed at U.S. citizens or institutions abroad. Keep this in mind in light of the USS Cole bombing, which was covered in Episode 4. This was why the ambassador on the ground in Yemen was able to block John O'Neill from coming back to the country. During O'Neill's two-year tenure as FBI head of counterterrorism, several major acts of terrorism took place in the United States and abroad. The Tokyo subway sarin attack, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Riyadh and Coburg Towers bombings, and the Centennial Olympic Park bombing. Though the cause was ultimately attributed to an electrical failure, the explosion of TWA Flight 800 also happened during this period. Whether or not the plane was brought down because of a terrorist attack was a constant subject of speculation at the time and for years later. January 1st, 1997. John O'Neill takes over as special agent in charge of the National Security Division in the FBI's New York field office. In this capacity, he has responsibility over all of the Bureau's counterterrorism and counterintelligence operations. It was the second largest branch of the New York field office, and he would have about 400 agents under his command. He began networking with New York A-listers and heavy hitters not long after arriving in Manhattan. U.S. Attorney Mary Jo White, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, Police Commissioner Howard Safir, Fire Commissioner Thomas Von Essen, and Archbishop John O'Connor. He also reached out to other contacts within the local law enforcement, intelligence, and political communities. He also did active outreach with New York's Muslim community, asking for a list of local mosques and their leaders, then going over to Queens or Brooklyn to meet with them regularly. According to O'Neill biographer Murray Weiss, quote, He said the FBI was there to help them, not persecute them, in case of a criminal act committed by a few fanatics. June 11, 1997. One month after Osama bin Laden's CNN interview aired, John O'Neill was giving a speech on the subject of terrorism to the National Strategy Forum in Chicago. Without mentioning bin Laden or Al-Qaeda, O'Neill's speech covered the past and present issues driving terrorism in the world at the time. Islamic grievances against Israel and the United States, the role of the Afghanistan Jihad in the 80s and the perception that the Mujahideen had defeated a superpower, the idea that American counterterrorism needed to expand beyond a mindset of state-sponsored terrorism whenever there was an attack somewhere in the world. Perhaps the most chilling and accurate comment from the speech, quote, Almost all of the groups today, if they chose to, have the ability to strike us here in the United States. They're working toward that infrastructure. November 1997. A young agent fresh out of Quantico named Ali Sufan reports for duty at the New York field office. Originally from Lebanon, Sufan's family had emigrated to the United States. He applied for a job at the FBI as a bet just to see how far he could get through the vetting process. Just as he was about to finish graduate school, 
he got a letter offering him a job as an agent. He accepted. While doing his initial rotation through the various squads in the New York office in February of 1998, Sufan read about Osama bin Laden's fatwa issued in the name of the World Islamic Front. He wrote a background memo to his supervisor, who passed it on to an agent in I-49, the squad in the office that focused on Sunni terrorist groups, which also included bin Laden. At the end of Sufan's rotation through the office, he was offered a position inside the JTTF. He did work for both I-49 and I-40, the squad specializing in Palestinian terrorist groups and states that sponsor terrorism. At the time he joined the FBI, Ali Sufan was one of only eight FBI agents in the entire country who spoke Arabic, and the only one in New York City. Over the next several years, he would play key roles in Al-Qaeda criminal investigations and in interrogations of Al-Qaeda suspects. The FBI's New York field office is located at 26 Federal Plaza in Lower Manhattan, which is also home to the New York field offices for other federal agencies. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York is at 1 St. Andrews Plaza, also in Lower Manhattan. Both offices are about half a mile apart from each other, and about three miles northeast of the World Trade Center. Before 9-11, most CIA personnel were placed in one of two main branches, called directorates. The Directorate of Intelligence is where the analysts were placed, based on area of expertise such as terrorism, Russia, or counterintelligence. They take the information that is collected from the field and try to make sense of it so that policymakers and leaders can make informed decisions. Analysts write reports based on their findings or give briefings. Today it is called the Directorate of Analysis. The Directorate of Operations is where the spies in the field are placed. These are the people who are usually posted at American embassies abroad under diplomatic cover and handle the collection of human intelligence. This means they go out, meet with sources, and report back whatever they find. This directorate is also responsible for carrying out covert operations. The Central Intelligence Agency got into counterterrorism fairly recently in its long history. The year was 1985. In June, two terrorists armed with grenades and handguns hijacked TWA Flight 847 during a routine flight from Athens to Rome. For 17 days, the pilot was forced to crisscross the Mediterranean, landing at various cities in the region before finally stopping in Beirut. During one stop, the terrorists beat 23-year-old Robert Stetham, a U.S. Navy diver from Maryland. He was dragged to the open aircraft door, shot in the head, and his body was thrown to the tarmac. The lead terrorist was alleged to have been a member of Hezbollah, the Shia militia with ties to the Islamic Republic of Iran. In November, Egypt Air Flight 648 was hijacked during its journey from Athens to Cairo. The plane was forced to land in Malta. While trying to negotiate for more fuel for the plane, the three hijackers threatened to execute a hostage every 10 minutes. Egyptian commandos subsequently stormed the plane. 59 people were killed in the operation along with two of the three hijackers. A federal judge in the United States sentenced the surviving hijacker to life in prison. Scarlett Rogenkamp, a 38-year-old American woman who worked for the U.S. Air Force in Athens, was killed during the hijacking. The hijackers were members of the Abu Nidal organization, a radical Palestinian group that had split from the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1974. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, its goal was to derail diplomatic relations between the PLO and the West, while simultaneously advocating the destruction of Israel. 
It had been considered the most dangerous terrorist organization in the world since the mid-70s, with offices in Libya and Syria. In December, terrorists from the Abu Nidal organization fired machine guns at the El Al ticket counters at the Vienna and Rome airports. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, El Al is the national airline of Israel. 16 people were killed, and more than 110 were injured. One of the dead was an 11-year-old American girl named Natasha Simpson. The idea came from a veteran intelligence officer named Dwayne Claridge, who at that point was chief of the agency's European operations. According to historian Tim Naftali, Claridge, quote, believed it was essential to create a unit within the CIA's Directorate of Operations that focused solely on counterterrorism. He, quote, set out to shake the administration out of its lethargy on the terrorism account. Then-CIA Director Bill Casey endorsed Claridge's proposal for the new counterterrorism unit. He gave him and his deputy, Fred Turk, a wide latitude to hire analysts from throughout the agency as they saw fit. According to Naftali, Claridge and Turco, quote, estimated that their new task force would have to become expert on terrorists from over 200 different organizations in every region of the globe. It therefore made sense that they would need people from every one of the CIA's geographical desks. Naftali continues, quote, The result was a strange hybrid organization that had both an analytic and an operational capability with a staff of about 250 people. The CIA's Counterterrorism Center, known colloquially as CTC, opened for business in February of 1986 with Claridge as its first director. Keep in mind, this is the same Dwayne Claridge who would later be implicated in the Iran-Contra scandal. As they were building CTC, Claridge and his deputy director Fred Turco discovered that there weren't any, quote, ongoing offensive covert operations against international terrorist organizations. They decided to focus the CTC's efforts against the Abu Nidal organization. Several developments worked out in CTC's favor. September 5th, 1986, Four terrorists armed with grenades and automatic weapons from the Abu Nidal organization hijacked Pan Am Flight 73 in Karachi, Pakistan. It was on a stopover as part of its route beginning in Mumbai, India before continuing to Frankfurt, West Germany and ultimately ending in New York. The plane remained on the tarmac for what would become a 16-hour siege. Pakistani security forces stormed the plane. 22 people were killed and 150 were injured. Two of the dead were Americans. After being presented with evidence that Syria was behind the Abu Nidal hijackers in this operation, Syrian dictator Hafez al-Assad purged several senior members of his country's intelligence community and expelled Abu Nidal from his country. The organization relocated to Lebanon and Libya. The CTC discovered that the Abu Nidal organization was, quote, deeply paranoid and set out to exploit this weakness. They took a page from the Joseph Stalin playbook. During the 1930s, he had killed purged or sidelined many of his best deputies out of a sense of self-preservation or paranoia. The CTC's idea was to get the Abu Nidal organization to do the same thing. It had key regional allies in this effort, the PLO along with Israeli and Jordanian intelligence. Many Abu Nidal members defected to the PLO. This was the beginning of the organization's problems. In 1987, Abu Nidal ordered the arrest, torture, and execution of two of his best officers, because of accusations that they were Jordanian spies. Abu Nidal then purged the organization of their allies. According to Naftali, quote, dozens of other officers were subsequently shot and buried in a mass grave. 
Other people murdered during the same year included members of the organization's finance, intelligence, and political directorates. One of them was Abu Nidal's former deputy. The defections and purges, combined with the domestic crackdown of Abu Nidal operatives and sympathizers in the United States by the FBI, created a downward spiral from which the organization would never recover. Naftali notes, quote, These detections, defections, and deaths did not destroy the Abu Nidal organization, but from 1990 to 1991, it would never again pose a significant threat to U.S. interests. Abu Nidal would not die for another decade, but he was effectively neutralized. The CTC also had other successes in the early to mid-90s. As part of a campaign against Shining Path in Peru, it helped local authorities track the insurgent group's mastermind, Abimael Guzman. As discussed in Episode 2, CTC also assisted in the hunt for Carlos the Jackal, who was captured by French intelligence officers in Sudan in 1994. CTC's success against Abu Nidal set the bar for how other organizations should be dealt with. As recently as 2001, White House counterterrorism advisor Richard Clark was taking the objective set for Abu Nidal and applying them to al-Qaeda. By the time of Osama bin Laden's return to Afghanistan in 1996, the CTC was barely a decade old. Cynthia Storer worked in CTC beginning in the mid-90s. Was there such a thing as a typical day at the office for you? Not really. So for most analysts, you come in, you look at the mail, so to speak, right? You read all the stuff that's come in. You decide what it is that you, you know, if there's something that needs to go in the president's daily brief or some other product that day. If not, you work on projects you're working on, um, go to meetings, all that kind of stuff. Um, in CTC, however, although those things did happen, it was also more crisis oriented. So you never knew what was going to happen day to day. I spent a lot of time working with the operations folks too. So I was doing both an all source analyst job and supporting um, Mike's branch. Um, they would come to me with questions about, you know, do you know anything about this guy? Can you look at this? That kind of thing. And so we worked together that way. She pieced together the Al-Qaeda organization before Jamal al-Fadl defected and revealed everything he knew to the Department of Justice. How did you first figure out, hear about Al-Qaeda then? Uh, well, there's a combination of things. So one thing is just, just a lot of hard, just a lot of hard work, you know, putting all those little dots together. You know, they said you didn't connect the dots. Well, we've been doing it for a decade. Um, so figuring out what the that there was an organization, what that organization looked like. And then... Um, and then when Fadl came in, he confirmed a lot of the stuff we'd already figured out. And then he had more detail. So that's that's one way you can vet somebody who's a walk-in, right? He walks mm -hmm. in and he gives a story. And you're like, oh, my God, we kind of already figured out a lot of this stuff. But you did it through, like, link analysis, right? Like that whole beautiful body thing where there's all the photos and the, you know, the links and the I lines and connecting everything or what? <laughs> I wish I had been able to do it that way. That You know, if you think back to 1996, the software did not exist. <laughs> right. I'm doing this in Word documents. <laughs> what about like what you see, like all the movies, right? Like the bulletin board with like the photos and the yeah. maps and the, you know, the like the yarn, yeah. little threads of yarn. Connecting that came all the later. People. I didn't have any of that. I just had okay. lots and lots of Word documents with things like listed under each other. and Gotcha. So you're seeing, you start to see the shape of something, but you don't necessarily know what that is. You just know that it's there, right? It's like. I know, it's like a black hole. You don't well, know you what you start to see the shape of something actually from the beginning. So, so back to the 80s, Bin Laden and Azam and some of the others were part of 
a council that ran the Mujahideen presence that, you know, interfaced with the NGOs and with Saudi Arabia and the fighters coming in and out and ran the guest houses for the fighters and ran the training camps. And they did all of that was council. In 89, about 89, Soviets were leaving, right? Left leaving. They're trying to figure out what to do next. And there was a disagreement. All this is open source. Now there started to be this struggle uh, after the Soviets left between those on the council who had wanted to um, focus on places that had been invaded by non-Muslims, Bosnia, Chechnya, parts of Russia, right? Versus the members of the council and others who wanted to go back home and start revolutions in Egypt and Jordan and other places like that. And so Al-Qaeda won that. They won the struggle and they won it globally. They took over offices in the United States. They took over the office in London. I mean, they, some of it was bloody. Um, they won. And it took us a little while to figure that out. It took about, about 95 to figure out that that's what was happening. Um, and so, so, you know, we, we could see this starting earlier, right? You could see some of this. And the FBI actually saw, they again, not knowing it was Al-Qaeda, not knowing there was an organization behind this, but they were following leads in New York, you know, in, in various bombing attempt cases and assassination cases in New York. Barbara Sood was an Africa analyst before joining CTC. When and how do you first hear of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda? I heard about bin Laden and Al-Qaeda way before I was working in counterterrorism. We knew of him as a terrorist financier um, issue, and I'd worked on sub-Saharan Africa before and on political Islam. So just before I came to CTC, I was working on Africa, but that wasn't very long. I'd previously been an analyst on it for quite a few years. But so I guess the period I was on political Islam was where I really got into it. There was a lot of um, information about the Afghan Arabs and about um, organizations in various countries, uh, often by dissidents from Saudi Arabia, like the Advice and Reform Committee that bin Laden had and the Center uh, uh, for the Defense of Legitimate Rights, Committee for the Defense of Legitimate Rights. I have it written down here, I don't remember. You'll know what that is, you can look that up. Um, and those were Saudi dissidents who were operating out of London. So there was a big center in London and several other areas of Europe and scattered around the Middle East. And then there was a big uptick with the Algerian election overthrow in 1992. So all of that was, um, there were activist groups in Sub-Saharan Africa too. So when I was working on that, I covered political Islam there. Um, to an extent, I was mainly a political analyst on the countries, but I did do some of the political Islam. So we had, you know, political Islam can be non-extremist or it can be extremist. So it ran the gamut what we would cover on those issues. January 1996, the CTC opens a new office dedicated specifically to tracking Osama bin Laden. It operated out of an office building in suburban Virginia, a few miles from CIA headquarters. 
The technical term for it was a virtual station, which according to journalist Steve Call meant, quote, within the CAA's budgeting and cable routing systems, the unit would have the administrative status, privileges, and autonomy enjoyed by more traditional stations abroad. Although the formal name was the Bin Laden Issue Station, it would be renamed Alex Station, after analyst Michael Scheuer's son. Lawrence Wright described Scheuer as, quote, a driven and demanding person who sleeps only a few hours a night and was known for signing the employee signing sheet during late overnight hours. Before getting the Alex Station assignment, Scheuer had been running the Islamic extremist branch at CTC. The plan for the Bin Laden Station was for it to serve as a prototype for dealing with other transnational threats in the future. This is an excerpt from Steve Call's book Ghost Wars, Quote, they would fuse intelligence disciplines into one office, operations, analysis, signal intercepts, overhead photography, and so on. The National Security Agency had tapped into Bin Laden's satellite telephone and kept track of his international conversations. These intercepts could be used by the new station to track his payments and connections in multiple countries. Alex Station initially employed a staff of approximately 16 people compared to about 30 or so analysts who worked in CTC. Many of them were women. It was not considered a coveted assignment at the beginning. Analysts assigned there had an average of three years of professional experience. The profile at Alex Station skewed heavy toward one particular demographic, female analysts. By the spring of 1999, there were an estimated 25 people assigned to Alex Station. 70% of the unit's staff were women, and two-thirds of them were analysts. They were derisively referred to within the agency as the Manson family because of their crazed, alarmist views about the Al-Qaeda threat. According to Steve Call, one person involved compared the unit's atmosphere to Jonestown. One of the original analysts in the newly formed Alex Station was a woman named Jennifer Matthews, who will be discussed in greater detail in a future episode. FBI agent Daniel Coleman was also one of the Alex Station originals. According to Lawrence Wright, Coleman first heard of Osama bin Laden in 1993, quote, when a foreign source spoke about a Saudi prince who was supporting a cell of radical Islamists who were plotting to blow up New York landmarks. This was the landmarks plot, previously covered in episode 3. Three years later, the Bureau sent him to Virginia to look at the intelligence already compiled on bin Laden to see if there was any reason to open an investigation. At that point, Alex Station had an estimated 35 volumes worth of material about bin Laden, most of it transcripts of phone calls that had been picked up by the eavesdroppers at the NSA. When bin Laden issued his declaration of jihad in August of 1996, Daniel Coleman was one of the few people in the entire U.S. government who had heard of him at that point. Bin Laden's public statements during this period were covered in Episode 4. Coleman showed the August 1996 declaration to prosecutors from the Southern District of New York. According to Lawrence Wright, the lawyers came up with an obscure, seditious conspiracy statute dating back to the Civil War, which forbids instigating violence and attempting to overthrow the U.S. government. Based on this interpretation, Coleman would open a criminal investigation into a historic figure who, in five short years, would become the most wanted man in the world. Three months later, Coleman, along with federal prosecutors Patrick Fitzgerald and Kenneth Karras, traveled to Germany to debrief Al-Qaeda defector Jamal al-Fadl. Left to his own devices at Alex Station, Coleman spent the better part of a year and a half investigating Bin Laden, largely on his own. Through wiretaps on Bin Laden's business operations, Coleman put together a picture of the size and scope of the Al-Qaeda network. 
Though it only had 93 members at the time, Lawrence Wright notes that Coleman, quote, was alarmed to realize that many of Al-Qaeda's associates had ties to the United States. He concluded this was a worldwide terror organization dedicated to destroying America, but Coleman couldn't even get his superiors to return his phone calls on the matter. During the years leading up to 9-11, Alex Station and CTC would design operations with the intention of capturing bin Laden alive, although none of them were ever actually carried out. Based on his reading of the 9-11 Commission report, Washington Post fact-checker Glenn Kessler came up with nine separate occasions in which Bill Clinton or his administration were presented with an option to capture or kill bin Laden and, for whatever reason, declined to take action. Number 1. The Tarnak Farms Raid By the fall of 1997, the CIA had put together a plan for Afghan tribes to capture bin Laden and hand him over for trial in the United States or another Arab country. By early 1998, the Principals Committee, quote, gave the concept its blessing, according to the 9-11 Commission. Keep in mind, this is about six or seven months before the Africa Embassy bombings. The Justice Department would not get its sealed indictment against bin Laden until June 10th. The point being, the agency was planning ahead, proactively, to capture Osama bin Laden alive, before the American justice system had finished its process, and before Al-Qaeda had carried out its first major attacks. The initial plan put together by CTC and Alex Station was to ambush bin Laden while he was traveling between Kandahar and his main home at Tarnak Farms. The 9-11 Commission report described Tarnak Farms as, quote, a compound of about 80 concrete or mud brick buildings surrounded by a 10-foot wall. Tarnak Farms was located in an isolated desert area on the outskirts of the Kandahar Airport. CIA officers were able to map the entire site, identifying the houses that belonged to bin Laden's wives and the one where bin Laden himself was most likely to sleep. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, the Afghan tribals reported that they tried such an ambush and failed, even though the report expresses a degree of skepticism about that story. After this, the plan shifted to a nighttime raid on Tarnak Farms. The CIA and its tribal allies drew up a plan for the raid. By the fall of 1997, they had already run through two rehearsals of the operation. CIA Director George Tenet walked National Security Advisor Sandy Berger through the plan on February 13, 1998. One group of tribals would raid the compound, subdue the guards, grab bin Laden, and take him to a desert site outside of Kandahar, where they would turn him over to a second group. This second group would take him to a desert landing zone already tested during the capture of Mir Aymalkanzi in 1997. From there, a CIA plane would take him to New York or an Arab capital, or any other place where he might be arraigned. Briefing papers prepared by the CTC note that there was an element of risk to the operation. People could get killed, Bin Laden's supporters might retaliate. But the papers also noted the risk of not acting. Quote, Sooner or later, Bin Laden will attack U.S. interests, perhaps using weapons of mass destruction. A third rehearsal for the operation took place in March, although Richard Clark described what he saw as, quote, somewhat embryonic and, quote, months away from doing anything. The plan had changed by this point. Bin Laden would be held captive by tribals in a hiding place for as long as a month before he'd be turned over to the United States. Gary Schroen, the lead CIA officer in the field at the time, gave the plan a 40% likelihood of capturing or killing Bin Laden, calling it, quote, about as good as it can be. The CIA did a final rehearsal for the operation in mid-May, 
which, quote, went well, according to the 9-11 Commission. June 23rd was set as the date for the operation, with bin Laden's exfiltration from Afghanistan set to happen by July 23rd at the latest. But after a meeting of CIA leadership on May 29th, the decision was made to abort the operation. Number two, more airstrikes after infinite reach. According to the 9-11 Commission, officials began considering follow-up strikes in the final week of August of 1998. The report notes, quote, President Clinton was inclined to launch sooner rather than later. A senior Defense Department official told Secretary of Defense William Cohen that, quote, the available targets were not promising. The official, quote, worried that simply striking some of these available targets did not add up to an effective strategy. The 9-11 Commission report notes, quote, eventually the discussion became mired in the bureaucracy and went nowhere. Number three, the Tarnak Farms raid revisited. After the Africa Embassy bombings, President Clinton signs a memorandum of notification authorizing the CIA to, quote, let its tribal assets use force to capture bin Laden and his associates. CIA officers told their tribal contacts that the plan to capture bin Laden, which had been turned off several months earlier, was now back on. This version of the document gave the CIA instructions to capture bin Laden and authorized the use of lethal force only in self-defense. The Afghan tribals would only be paid if they captured bin Laden alive, not if they killed him. Number 4. The Haji Habash House Strike The CIA received intelligence that bin Laden would be spending the night of December 20, 1998 at Haji Habash House, which is part of the residence of the governor of Kandahar. CIA officer Gary Schroen advised, quote, Hit him tonight, we may not get another chance. The Principals Committee gathered and discussed a possible cruise missile strike with intention of killing bin Laden. The issue of collateral damage comes up. One senior military officer estimated that as many as 200 could be killed or wounded in the attack, in addition to damages to a nearby mosque. Quoting the 9-11 Commission report, By the end of the meeting, the Principals decided against recommending to the President that he order a strike. Within 24 hours of the decision not to strike the Haji Habash House, CIA leadership urged changes to the language of the Memorandum of Understanding, which would ensure tribals got paid if bin Laden was caught, dead or alive. President Clinton would eventually approve this revised version of the document. Number 5. The AC-130 After the decision not to fire cruise missiles at Kandahar discussed in Number 4, the Pentagon came up with plans to use an AC-130 gunship. The thinking, according to the 9-11 Commission, was that, quote, because this system could target more precisely than a salvo of cruise missiles, it had a much lower risk of causing collateral damage. Ultimately, the AC-130 was never deployed. Number 6. The Desert Hunting Camp In early 1999, the CIA received intelligence that bin Laden was spending a lot of time at a particular camp in the desert south of Kandahar. In February, he was located in the area near the Sheikh Ali camp. The 9-11 Commission report describes it as, quote, a desert hunting camp being used by visitors from a Gulf state. CIA assets on the ground provided descriptions of the hunting camp and bin Laden's adjoining camp. Size, security measures, resources. The advantage to this camp as a target is that it was away from a populated urban area, keeping collateral damage from a missile strike to a minimum. On February 8th, the U.S. military began preparing for a possible strike. Bin Laden would regularly go from his camp to the larger hunting camp, which was occupied by unknown high-level Emiratis. 
intelligence confirmed the location of an official aircraft from the United Arab Emirates nearby, though they were not able to pinpoint bin Laden's quarters as precisely, the 9-11 Commission noted. Osama bin Laden was expected to be at the hunting camp until mid-morning on February 11th. No strike was ever launched, out of concern for potential fallout of killing an Emirati prince or senior official in a strike targeting bin Laden. By February 12th, bin Laden had moved on, making any possible military plans void. To compound the matter, White House counterterrorism advisor Richard Clark called an Emirati official on March 7th to express concern about possible connections between bin Laden and some of his colleagues. Why was this important? Because subsequent satellite imagery of the hunting campsite showed that it had been dismantled in a hurry within a week of Clark's phone call. The 9-11 Commission noted, quote, CIA officers, including Deputy Director for Operations Bruce Pavitt, were irate. Former Alex Station head Mike Scheuer, quote, thought the dismantling of the camp erased a potential site for targeting bin Laden. Number 7. The Northern Alliance In February of 1999, President Clinton was asked to sign another memorandum of notification, which would authorize the CIA to give the same guidance on bin Laden to the Northern Alliance as it had to the tribals. The Northern Alliance is described as, quote, dominated by Tajiks and drew its strength from the northern and eastern parts of Afghanistan, and were the Taliban's main adversary in the civil war to determine control of the country. They were led by Ahmed Shah Massoud, described by the 9-11 Commission as, quote, one of the true heroes of the war against the Soviets. But he would have been a flawed ally. The 9-11 Commission noted that his bands had been charged with more than one massacre, and the Northern Alliance, quote, was widely thought to finance itself in part through trade and heroin, nor had Massoud shown much aptitude for governing except as a worthless warlord. He will be covered in more detail in a future episode. When CIA Director George Tenet tried to enlist the Northern Alliance and asked President Clinton for permission to make them partners, Clinton signed the Memorandum of Notification, whose language reverted back to the original document from August of 1998. Remember, this version of the document only authorized bin Laden's capture compared to the one that Clinton signed in December of 1998, which authorized bin Laden's capture or killing under certain conditions. Number 8. The Kandahar Missile Strike In May of 1999, CIA assets in Afghanistan reported on bin Laden's location in and around Kandahar over a period of five days and nights. The reporting was described as, quote, very detailed and came from several sources. The 9-11 Commission noted, quote, communications were good and the cruise missiles were ready. Ultimately, the decision was to stand down, even though military and intelligence officials interviewed by the commission felt very bullish about the mission's chances of success. Bin Laden, quote, should have been a dead man, one unnamed military officer said. The 9-11 Commission called this, quote, perhaps the last and most likely the best opportunity arose for targeting Bin Laden with cruise missiles before 9-11. Number 9. The USS Cole According to the 9-11 Commission, Osama bin Laden was expecting military retaliation for bombing the USS Cole, which was previously covered in Episode 4. In mid-November of 2000, the then-chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Hugh Shelton, briefed National Security Advisor Sandy Berger on the military strike options. These were developed in the aftermath of Operation Infinite Reach in 1998. The Joint Chiefs of Staff and Central Command had refined it to a list of 13 possibilities or combinations. CENTCOM also added a phased campaign concept for wider-ranging strikes, which included possible strikes against the Taliban. 
In December, the CIA made a presentation with its investigative team's findings in the USS Cole bombing. While their evidence pointed to Al-Qaeda, President Clinton and National Security Advisor Sandy Berger told the 9-11 Commission that it, quote, was not the conclusion they needed in order to go to war or deliver an ultimatum to the Taliban threatening war. The commission also notes that Clinton, quote, did not think it would be responsible for a president to launch an invasion of another country just based on a preliminary judgment. Ultimately, as previously mentioned in episode 4, no attack was launched in response to the coal. The 9-11 Commission report quotes an official rhetorically asking Department of Defense officials, quote, does Al-Qaeda have to attack the Pentagon to get their attention? Asked to comment on the different proposals to target bin Laden during the final years of the Clinton administration, here's what former National Security Council official Stephen Simon said. I don't think any of them were really viable because, you know, to be successful in attack really had to be staged uh, either from within Afghanistan uh, or from Pakistan. And either way, uh, the, the fact of the U.S. operation, the planning for it, the preparation and so forth, uh, would have become known uh, to the Pakistani government and that information uh, uh, would probably have found its way uh, to uh, to Al Qaeda and to Bin Laden, uh, so you know I don't think that you know barring a presence in Afghanistan uh, that would be uh, really secure, the United States would have found it very difficult uh, to implement you know any plan uh, to uh, to get rid of Bin Laden, and and typically, you know in those days. Uh, of course, before 9-11, uh, there was a sensitivity to uh, collateral damage. You know, the government, the U.S. government, really didn't want to launch raids that uh, stood the, you know, that stood the risk of, of killing a lot of civilians, uh, especially if bin Laden weren't actually at the site when, you know, the deadly attack were to take place. So, um that mentality shifted after 2001 when, you know, the gloves were off, you know, and there wasn't anything goes uh, mentality. And it was, it was uh, very difficult in the, in the late nineties in planning a strike to be reasonably sure that civilians weren't going to be killed when Bin Laden was stationary, insofar as intelligence indicated. Um, he was generally in these small cantonments uh, and the buildings uh, where he was thought to be were quite close uh, to other structures that were either houses of worship or schools or uh, or what have you. So there was a hesitancy to use the kind of um, uh, weapons that would stand a pretty good chance of killing a lot of uh, killing a lot of innocent people. So I think you know you take those factors together uh, and and you um, uh, wind up with a, a, a pretty discouraging uh, environment for um, uh, trying to take out bin Laden.
Meanwhile, Saudi security services foiled a number of bin Laden cells inside the kingdom, which were planning to attack American military personnel with shoulder-fired missiles. CIA Director George Tenet took advantage of the opportunity to ask the Saudis for help against bin Laden. The Saudis agreed to push the Taliban to expel bin Laden from Afghanistan so that he might be sent to the United States or another country to stand trial. The point man leading this effort would be Prince Turki al-Faisal, the head of Saudi intelligence. Prince Turki met with Mullah Omar and other Taliban leaders in the summer of 1998. According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, Apparently employing a mixture of possible incentives and threats, Turkey received the commitment that bin Laden would be expelled, but Mullah Omar did not make good on this promise. One of the most contentious developments during this period was the issue of who, if anyone, leaked the existence of Osama bin Laden's satellite phone. Most people point to the publication of a Washington Times story on August 21, 1998, the day after Operation Infinite Reach. The story was a profile of Osama bin Laden, who had been in the news for several weeks prior because of the Africa embassy bombings. Reporter Martin Seif mentions the satellite phone in the 21st paragraph of the story. Bin Laden, quote, keeps in touch with the world via computers and satellite phones, and has given occasional interviews to international news organizations, including Time Magazine and CNN News. Seif would later tell the Washington Post that the information about the satellite phone was, quote, already in the public domain at the time he wrote his story. The 9-11 Commission report, as well as Daniel Benjamin and Stephen Simon's book, The Age of Sacred Terror, both made the claim that bin Laden stopped using his satellite phone after this story was published. The implication is that as a result, the American intelligence community lost the ability to track bin Laden through his satellite phone. This may not necessarily be the case. The intelligence community had been monitoring the calls made from bin Laden's satellite phone well before the Africa embassy bombings. Several calls from bin Laden's phone were made to the Al-Qaeda switchboard in Yemen, which was covered back in episode 4. Evidence from the Africa embassy bombings investigation showed that bin Laden's satellite phone had been purchased through Khalid al-Fawaz, who had formerly led Al-Qaeda's Nairobi cell before being sent to London. Once there, he worked at the Advice and Reform Committee, which some have dubbed Bin Laden's Embassy in London. It was through this London-based office that news organizations submitted their requests to interview Bin Laden. According to Lawrence Wright's book, The Looming Tower, quote, Bin Laden had a satellite phone, but he spoke on it sparingly, believing that the Americans were monitoring his calls. He was suspicious of mechanical devices in general, even clocks, which he thought might be used for surveillance. This would mean he was aware of the American surveillance capabilities and deemed the use of the phone an acceptable risk. According to Peter Bergen, Bin Laden would often have his subordinates make phone calls using his device. According to evidence presented in one of the Al-Qaeda trials in New York in March of 2001, Bin Laden's satellite phone made an estimated 450 calls between January 1st and August 21st of 1998. Quote, the phone went dead for the rest of the month, a report by Human Rights First notes. After that, phone records show four calls were made in September of 1998 and nine more were made in October. The last call from Bin Laden's satellite phone happened at 1328 Greenwich Mean Time on October 9, 1998. The earliest media report mentioning Bin Laden's use of a satellite phone can be traced to a Time Magazine article from December 16, 1996. The story noted that Bin Laden, quote, 
He uses satellite phones to contact fellow Islamic militants in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. This information was attributed to Taliban officials. On August 20, 1998, Al-Qaeda expert Peter Bergen appeared on CNN to discuss the network's interview with bin Laden from a year earlier. Quote, he communicates by satellite phone, even though Afghanistan in some levels is back in the Middle Ages in a country that barely functions, Bergen said. He also pointed out that even as far back as 1997, when he traveled to Afghanistan for the interview, bin Laden's people were concerned about electronic surveillance. The Los Angeles Times was the first media organization to report that the United States had been intercepting bin Laden's phone calls and had obtained his voice print. However, this story did not run until September 7, 1998, 17 days after phone records show the last call was made during the month of August. Given the timing of events in August of 1998 and how widely known the existence of the satellite phone was by then, it's probably more likely that bin Laden stopped using the phone because of the Clinton administration's missile attacks rather than because of a story in the Washington Times. He would have reason to do so. Washington Post reporter Glenn Kessler pointed out that in 1996, Chechen insurgent leader Johar Dudayev was killed by a Russian missile that was locked in on a satellite phone signal. December 4th, 1998, President Clinton receives warnings of possible Al-Qaeda attacks involving aviation hijackings in his presidential daily brief. The document was later declassified at the request of the 9-11 Commission. Like the more widely known presidential daily brief of August 6, 2001, which will be covered in a future episode, this document only makes sense with the benefit of hindsight. To paraphrase a comment made by National Security Advisor Sandy Berger, the interpretations of these intelligence reports were made from the vantage point of a driver looking through a muddy windshield, not through a clean rearview mirror. The December 4th, 1998 PDB is titled, quote, Bin Laden preparing to hijack U.S. aircraft and other attacks. Like its August 6, 2001 counterpart, based on a face value reading, the subject title is correct, absent of any context of what is known about the time and the content of the document. The PDB suggests Bin Laden or his allies in the Egyptian jihadist organization Jamaat al-Islamiyah were planning an attack or a hijacking of an aircraft as a means to negotiate the release of the Blind Sheikh, World Trade Center bomber Ramzi Youssef, and Mohammed Sadiq Auda. The report notes that members of Bin Laden's network might have received hijack training, but correctly notes that, quote, no group directly tied to Bin Laden's Al-Qaeda organization has ever carried out an aircraft hijacking. If this intelligence report was correct, it means that three years before 9-11, Al-Qaeda was at least considering an aviation hijacking plot for the more traditional purpose of negotiating a prisoner release. This had been a common motive for aviation hijackings during the 60s and 70s, and will be discussed in more depth in a future episode. The report also notes, quote, the Bin Laden organization or its allies are moving closer to implementing anti-U.S. attacks at unspecified locations, but we do not know whether they are related to attacks on aircraft. There is evidence of at least one incident in which President Clinton expressed frustration at his lack of options for striking back up Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. After a meeting in the cabinet room at some point in 2000, President Clinton approached the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Hugh Shelton, and said, quote, You know, it would scare the shit out of Al-Qaeda if suddenly a bunch of black ninjas rappelled out of helicopters into the middle of their camp. It would get us enormous deterrence and show those guys we're not afraid. 
This conversation was reported in Daniel Benjamin and Stephen Simon's book, The Age of Sacred Terror, and was later corroborated by the 9-11 Commission. It was also during this period that research and development into a new form of air warfare would begin to show signs of promise and practical application. According to Steve Call's book, Ghost Wars, the CIA and the Pentagon had looked into and experimented with unmanned aircraft for reconnaissance purposes as far back as the early 1980s. During this period, an obscure but very influential office in the Pentagon decided to invest in drones. The Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, colloquially known as DARPA, is the Pentagon's research and development agency responsible for the development of emerging technologies for national security. It has a long history of successful investments that have revolutionized everyday life. The first weather satellite, the internet, GPS receivers, high-altitude refueling, stealth technology. In 2013, DARPA invested $25 million in Moderna to test the idea of developing messenger RNA-based vaccines. This research would lay the groundwork for the company's COVID-19 vaccine seven years later. During the 80s, DARPA funded the construction of prototypes for a long-distance unmanned drone known as the Amber. During the 90s, the Predator drone was in development as the successor to the Amber. According to journalist Steve Call, Predators were secretly deployed to Bosnia in 1995. He writes that they were, quote, designed to loiter over targets for 24 hours and could fly as far as 500 miles from their home base at an altitude of up to 25,000 feet. At the time, it was only equipped with cameras, sensors, and other equipment, but it was not weaponized. It wasn't until later that people like CTC director Kofor Black began advocating for the drones to be armed with air-to-ground missiles. His idea was that it should be able to fire instantly if the drone spotted Bin Laden. The original thinking was that drones would be eyes in the sky as a targeting partner for missiles to be launched from a Navy warship or submarine. In the White House, Richard Clark was calling for lethal operations for the drone in Afghanistan, not just reconnaissance. There were bureaucratic arguments over who was going to pay for the program, the CIA or the Air Force. The White House imposed a cost-sharing agreement. According to the 9-11 Commission report, the CIA agreed to pay for Predator operations for a 60-day proof-of-concept trial run. The concept to be proven was that the CIA could fly a Predator, quote, from barren and difficult airfields controlled via satellites from a ground site many thousands of miles away. Essentially, the CIA would be flying drone missions departing from an airbase in Uzbekistan, but the pilots would be controlling the flights from inside an agency operations center in Virginia. This joint CAA-Air Force effort, known as Afghan Eyes, began testing in July of 2000, as legal issues were still being sorted out. By August, the Principals Committee, made up of administration cabinet-level officials, agreed to deploy it. September 7, 2000. No one knew it at the time, but the world had just experienced a milestone in aviation and warfare. This was the day a Predator drone flew over Afghanistan for the first time. White House counterterrorism advisor Richard Clark described the footage from the flight as, quote, truly astonishing, and began arguing for more drone flights to find bin Laden and potentially target him with a cruise missile or an aerial attack. According to the 9-11 Commission report, 10 out of 15 Predator trial missions over Afghanistan were rated successful. 
On the first flight, it captured footage of a tall man in a white robe at Osama bin Laden's Tarnak Farms compound. According to Peter Bergen, during another flight on September 27th, the man in white was spotted again, quote, surrounded by smaller, darker figures who were showing him signs of respect. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, intelligence community analysts determined that he was probably bin Laden. NBC News obtained the drone footage of the man in white several years later. Unfortunately, the Afghan seasonal calendar was not working in their favor to continue testing the drones. Steve Call noted that, quote, By mid-October, fierce winds gathered in northern Afghanistan. On some flights, the Predator's Meek engine had trouble propelling the drone across the mountains. Temperatures plummeted, and wing icing became a more worrisome problem. They knew from Balkan's experience that the Predator was a very difficult plane to fly in bad weather. The White House and Counterterrorist Center halted the operation. With the drone program on hold, it would be up to the next administration to continue to develop it. By the time George W. Bush was sworn into office in January of 2001, Air Force engineers had equipped the Predator with a modified Hellfire anti-tank missile. It was tested in February in the United States with positive results. The missile hit the intended target six inches right of center. It still needed work though. The version developed by mid-2001 could not hit a moving target, such as a car. A declassified strategy paper written by Richard Clark in December of 2000 noted that plans were in development at the time for drone flights to resume in late March of 2001. This time, the Predator would be weaponized, equipped with what he calls a quote, see it, shoot it option. Unfortunately, the flights did not resume in the spring as he originally anticipated. June 2001 the CIA builds a replica of Osama bin Laden's Tarnak Farms home at a naval air weapon station in California. A Predator drone launches a Hellfire missile at the structure, and according to Peter Bergen, quote, successfully destroyed much of its interior. However, Steve Call notes, quote, the Bush cabinet had no policy about the novel idea of shooting terrorists with armed flying robots. The 9-11 Commission report notes, quote, the main debate during the summer of 2001 concentrated on the one new mechanism for a lethal attack on bin Laden, an armed version of the Predator drone. August 1st, 2001, the Deputies Committee meets to discuss the subject of armed Predator drones. They come to the conclusion that it would be legal to kill bin Laden or one of his deputies with a Predator. The reasoning behind that conclusion was that any such strike would be considered an act of self-defense and thus would not violate the ban on assassinations as set by Executive Order 12333. This order had been on the books since President Reagan signed it in 1981. At issue was Section 2.11, which unequivocally states, quote, No person employed by or acting on behalf of the United States government shall engage in or conspire to engage in assassination. September 4, 2001. The Bush administration holds its first principal-level meeting on the subject of Al-Qaeda, the issue of deploying an armed Predator drone to Afghanistan was discussed. According to the 9-11 Commission, this was National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice's summary of the meeting's conclusions about drones. Quote, The armed Predator capability was needed but not ready. The Predator should be available for the military to consider, along with its other options. The CAA should consider flying reconnaissance-only missions. The principals, including the previously reluctant CIA Director George Tenet, thought that such reconnaissance flights were a good idea, combined with other efforts to get actionable intelligence. Tenet deferred an answer on the additional reconnaissance flight, 
conferred with his staff after the meeting and then directed the CIA to press ahead with them. Ultimately, the Predator was not sent back to Afghanistan until after 9-11. This meeting will be discussed in more depth in a future episode. Talk of a metaphorical wall separating law enforcement from intelligence can be traced back to the aftermath of the 1994 arrest of Aldrich Ames. Ames was a 31-year veteran of the CIA, who had been a paid spy for the Russians during the final nine years of his career. Ames gave the Russians highly classified information about human intelligence sources, as well as technical operations. The sources betrayed by Ames were imprisoned or executed by the Russians. Ames was eventually arrested by the FBI and pleaded guilty. He is serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole in a federal prison. The 9-11 Commission pointed out that it was Ames' prosecution which raised concerns about the role of federal prosecutors in intelligence investigations. During the course of that investigation, FBI Director Louis Free and Attorney General Janet Reno had signed off on nine certifications to the FISA court that the information being sought was for the purpose of collecting foreign intelligence. Some of those certifications were made even after it was decided to prosecute Ames. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, Richard Scruggs, the acting head of OIPR, became worried that because of the numerous prior consultations between FBI agents and criminal prosecutors, the judge handling the criminal case might rule that the FISA warrants had been misused. If that happened, Ames might escape conviction. OIPR subsequently acted as a gatekeeper for the flow of FISA information to the prosecutors handling the Ames case. After Ames pled guilty and was sentenced, FBI headquarters sent out instructions to agents. According to the 9-11 Commission, the message was, quote, there would be no more contacts with prosecutors in foreign counterintelligence investigations without OIPR's permission. Deputy Director Robert Bryant warned agents that violating this new rule was a career stopper. In the months after, there were discussions between representatives of the FBI, OIPR, and the Justice Department's Criminal Division to try to come up with a framework that they could all operate under. July 19, 1995. The Attorney General's office issues a document titled, quote, Procedures for Contacts Between the FBI and the Criminal Division Concerning Foreign Intelligence and Foreign Counterintelligence Investigations. The new procedures require that the Criminal Division be notified when a foreign intelligence or counterintelligence investigation develops facts or circumstances that, quote, reasonably indicate that a significant federal crime has been, is being, or may be committed. The FISA court incorporated these procedures into future FISA orders, which would determine information sharing. The 9-11 Commission noted four caveats to these new procedures. One, they only apply to information gathered by the FBI in an intelligence investigation. They did not control information gathered by the CIA or the NSA, which could be shared with investigators or prosecutors without regard for the new procedures or OIPR. Two, the new procedure said nothing about internal information sharing within the FBI. The controls were on sharing between FBI agents and federal prosecutors, as Deputy Director Bryant's warning pointed out. Three, the new procedures compelled sharing of information when there was evidence of a, quote, significant criminal offense. The FBI and OIPR each had responsibilities to inform the criminal division when this threshold was met. Furthermore, the new procedures, quote, did not ban information sharing under any circumstances. Four, the limits on information sharing were only for the, quote, advice-giving role of prosecutors, not the sharing itself. 
According to the 9-11 Commission, quote, such advice could preserve the possibility of a criminal prosecution, but could not direct activities so as to enhance such a prosecution. Four years later, the Justice Department's Inspector General issued a report on the Department's handling of information in a campaign finance investigation. According to the 9-11 Commission, the Inspector General's report, quote, found that the 1995 procedures were largely misunderstood and often misapplied, resulting in undue reluctance among foreign counterintelligence agents to provide information to criminal investigators and prosecutors. The report also found that the FBI and OIPR, quote, simply ignored the information sharing requirements of the 1995 procedures. There were continuing discussions to reform the procedures between 1999 and 2001, though none of them really settled the issue to the satisfaction of all the parties involved. August 6, 2001, Deputy Attorney General Larry Thompson sends out a memo affirming the 1995 procedures, but making a specific note that evidence of any federal felony was to be reported immediately by the FBI to the Criminal Division in the Department of Justice. The FISA court approved of Thompson's modifications. Ultimately, the 1995 procedures were in effect on 9-11, and for some time after. By this point, the culture of agents not sharing intelligence with agents working on criminal cases had already been setting in for two years. Also happening in 1999, because of the millennium threats as well as the ongoing investigations of the Africa Embassy bombings, there were an unprecedented number of FISA applications filed with the court. Many of them were for coverage of individuals or facilities thought to have ties to Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden and his organization presented unique challenges to OIPR and the FISA court. Normally, once a subject has been indicted, that ends the intelligence case and OIPR would stop filing FISA applications. At that point, the criminal case would take over. But in the case of Bin Laden and his allies, they kept planning terrorist attacks, which required the continuation of the intelligence case. According to the 9-11 Commission, the solution they came up with was that the court wound up acting as the wall that determined the sharing of information obtained through FISA applications. If the FBI wanted to share this with prosecutors, it would require the court's permission to do so. The 9-11 Commission notes, quote, The first evidence of official FBI requirements for an internal wall between agents working on an intelligence investigation and criminal agents did not appear until December 2000. The roots of this internal wall can be traced to concerns in the FISA court with factual errors in a series of FISA applications, particularly related to Osama bin Laden. The errors were about the, quote, existence and nature of parallel criminal investigations. The court insisted on strict separation of criminal and intelligence matters. It also required all recipients of FISA information in the Department of Justice and the FBI to sign a certification which would acknowledge they understood the FISA court's limits on how and when the information could be shared. December 7, 2000 In light of the FISA court's warnings and new procedures, a supervisor in the FBI's New York field office designated an intelligence agent for his squad. The agent could review material from FISA surveillance, but could not share it with other agents or prosecutors from the Southern District of New York unless the agent got approval from four separate offices. The 9-11 Commission notes, quote, Although the additional restrictions applied only to specific FISA warrants, it is apparent that the FBI began applying these additional restrictions to its handling of other unrelated FISA coverage. Thus, by late November 2000, the incentive to share information with fellow agents all but disappeared. The culture of compartmentalization and secrecy created by the wall did not happen overnight. 
It took years for it to grow and become accepted practice, even if in many respects it went against the actual regulations that were on the books. Some agencies like the CIA and the National Security Agency were more aggressive about withholding intelligence than others. This creates an environment in which theoretically, the FBI agents who had the most knowledge and experience about Al-Qaeda could not be informed of new intelligence in certain circumstances. Why? Because of the possibility that they might have to testify in open court during an Al-Qaeda trial. Between 2000 and 2001, crucial information that might have led to the discovery of the 9-11 plot was withheld from the FBI. This happened in spite of the fact that the information in question did not fall under any of the restrictions or guidelines as outlined in the 1995 procedures. This will be discussed in more detail in a future episode. Bottom line, the wall separating intelligence from law enforcement had a legitimate and well-intentioned purpose, but neither the wall nor the existing regulations caused the failure to share crucial information with the FBI. April 3rd, 1999. While America was just 17 days away from the horrors of the Columbine school shooting, a 23-year-old Saudi national named Nawaf Al-Hazmi applied for a tourist visa at the American consulate in Jeddah. Four days later, another Saudi national named Khalid Al-Midar, who was a month shy of his 25th birthday, submitted his application for a U.S. visa at the consulate in Jeddah. You'll recall from episode 4 that Al-Midar is the son-in-law of Ahmed Al-Hada, the Yemeni man who ran Al-Qaeda's switchboard, which members used to relay messages back and forth to each other. The intelligence community had been monitoring that phone number since the FBI obtained it while interrogating the surviving Nairobi Embassy bomber. Both men submitted brand new passports with their visa applications. The new passports were used to hide a potential red flag for radicalization, because it would hide record of previous travel to Afghanistan. Both men were granted one-year multiple entry visas on the same day they submitted their applications. We'll come back to them in the next episode. September 15, 1999. The Hart-Rudman Commission released its first report on security challenges for the first quarter of the 21st century. Why is this document worth noting? Because two years before 9-11, the report correctly predicted some of the scenarios that would come to pass. The first general conclusion was, quote, America will become increasingly vulnerable to hostile attack on our homeland, and our military superiority will not entirely protect us. The report further notes, quote, states, terrorists, and other disaffected groups will acquire weapons of mass destruction and mass disruption, and some will use them. Americans will likely die on American soil, possibly in large numbers. The twelfth conclusion in the report reads, quote, U.S. intelligence will face more challenging adversaries, and even excellent intelligence will not prevent all surprises. The report received media coverage at the time, and was subject of at least one congressional hearing. Keep in mind, it was published one year after the Africa Embassy bombings, one year before the USS Cole bombing, and two years almost to the day before 9-11. November 30th, 1999, Jordanian intelligence intercepted a call between bin Laden loyalist Abu Zubaydah and Palestinian extremist Qadr Abu Hosar. During their conversation, Zubaydah said, quote, the time for training is over. Jordanian authorities interpreted that as a cue to launch a terrorist operation and subsequently arrested Hosar and 15 others. One of the suspects was a Palestinian man named Raed Hijazi, who was born in California and spent his childhood in the Middle East. He eventually returned to California, 
and made his way to Abu Zubaydah's training camp in Afghanistan. He and his brother were recruited by Hussar into a plot to attack Jewish and American targets in Amman, Jordan. By late 1998, they began accumulating bomb-making materials, including 5,200 pounds of nitric acid, which were stored in the sub-basement beneath a rented house. Six of the suspects in the plot were sentenced to death. While in custody, Hijazi's younger brother revealed the group's motto, quote, The season is coming, and bodies will pile up in sacks. December 14, 1999, a 23-year-old Algerian immigrant and petty criminal named Ahmed Ressam drove a rented car on the ferry from Victoria, British Columbia to Port Angeles, Washington. Ressam had received some terrorist training in Afghanistan a year earlier and had stashed explosives in the trunk's spare tire well. He cleared the initial pre-inspection in Canada before boarding the ferry. He waited until his was the last car to get off the ferry, under the assumption the last car would draw less scrutiny. When customs officials noticed his nervousness, he was sent to secondary inspection. When an agent asked him for additional identification and began an initial pat-down, Ressam panicked and unsuccessfully attempted to flee. Customs officers found the explosives and four timers inside Ressam's rented car. They initially assumed his intended target had been Seattle, but in time, as more evidence was discovered and Ressam began cooperating with authorities, his true objective was revealed. He intended to pick up an accomplice in Seattle, drive down to Los Angeles, case the Los Angeles International Airport as a potential target, and detonate the bomb on or about January 1st, 2000. In the aftermath of the Ressam arrest and Riyad Hijazi's connections in California and Massachusetts, the FBI asked for, quote, an unprecedented number of special wiretaps. Clinton National Security Advisor Sandy Berger and CIA Director George Tenet told the 9-11 Commission it was their impression that more FISA requests were processed during the heightened alert for the millennium than ever. Former CTC analyst Diana Balsinger recalled this stressful period. The millennium plot, we did go to high alert. We went to 24-7 operations for more than a month, including, I have uh, great memories of Sandy Berger coming to our office on Christmas Day to thank us for working, cheering us on. Uh, at that point, I was the on-site manager for, we had 40-some linguists from around the IC community, including active duty military, translating captured documents. The thing to know and how the Millennium Plot fits in to uh, 9-11, not only was there not a case of false exuberance at the end, we never really believed that it did end. That was the start of the truly hard days in CTC because none of us believed that it was over with the Rassam capture and the disruption in Jordan. There were enough indications that more had been plotted, even if it didn't take place during that millennium month. Balsinger also pointed out a noticeable change after the millennium. I will, the one thing I can say is 
the degree of White House engagement with CTC was never the same after the end of the millennial plot and the immediate aftermath. By the time you're getting to the fall of 2000 and the first five months of the Bush administration, we had noticeably much, much less access and engagement from either administration. Former FBI agent Mark Rossini explained the reaction within the Bureau at the time. Was there like a false sense of security because of that? Like, I feel like you guys have dodged the bullet. No, not not on O'Neill's part, and certainly not on most people in the FBI's part at all, because, you know, in law enforcement, you're taught when you're frisking somebody, if you find a gun, that means there's two guns. When you find a second gun, that means a third gun, and so on and so on. So the fact that the that plot was foiled gave us a temporary attaboy pat on the back. Hey, you know, we did it, it didn't happen kind of thing. But the reality was like, what don't we know? That's that's the more that's the more sinister part. The fact that they were here, Masinki was in Brooklyn, and Akhmer Sam was going to blow up LAX. No, they're here. Al-Qaeda had its own unsuccessful plot around the time of the millennium that went unnoticed at the time, a plan to attack the USS The Sullivans, a U.S. warship in the waters near the Yemeni port city of Aden, which was covered back in episode four. A few days after that setback, just two weeks into the new century, the real threat would fly into one of the busiest airports in the United States and clear customs without a hitch. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour. If you want to learn more, go to the website zerohourpod.com, where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I used in my research. The next episode will look at Al-Qaeda's Hamburg cell. How did four Muslims from different walks of life converge in one of Germany's biggest cities and become radicalized? How did they get to Afghanistan and become involved in the 9-11 plot? What warning signs were missed? I'm David Asola. Thank you for listening.